The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I am Rich Eisen, and who am I joined with today, Tim? Uh, Tim Foster. Yes. And John Norwood. And John Norwood. With Norwood Associates. So, Thank you. So the reason we are actually talking to John today is I was uh, scrolling LinkedIn, as one does, and I saw that he had, was, this was 33 years as a lobbyist, and I thought, wow, that's a long time in Sacramento, and I called him up to ask him about it. And it turned out that 33 years is not accurate, and it's not even close. You started lobbying, didn't you say, I think it was 1974? First registered 1974 with the California Manufacturers Association, um, just when Proposition, when Proposition 9 was passed. It was a Jerry Brown-sponsored initiative. Wow. So, so basically, so we thought we'd talk to John about the changes in the lobbying industry. I mean, that's almost 50 years, and... I would say the industry has changed night and day, especially after COVID. And then also about what he's been doing. I'm ju- this is something I inherited from John Howard. John Howard has always been fascinated by the fact that you, you represent the swimming pool manufacturers. Uh, and so he's always, you know, John being a guy with the swimming pool was always very interested in this issue. So, um, so we can talk about that too. But so, so go back to 1974. So how did you get into this? What made you want to get into the lobbying business back then? Wow, um, hadn't thought about that for a while. It was, in a lot of ways, happenstance. Um, I was actually a Sac State graduate and uh, planned on uh, coaching football and teaching uh, history or government, and that's what I was going to do. And, uh, um, and I needed an internship, and um, actually through athletics at Sac State, I ran into the uh, then Speaker of the Assembly, Bob Moretti, and the then pro tem of the uh, Senate, Howard Way and a couple of lobbyists, Bob Sholoto, used to represent the manufacturers, or excuse me, the California Retailers Association, and was really a legend in this industry. And uh, we got to talking, and they invited me down to the Capitol. Um, spent some time down the Capitol, and just liked the environment, the competitiveness of it, the fact that every day changed. And, um, you know, as I got into my graduate program in government, it just seemed to be the natural way to go. And uh, so I, I got lucky and got a job with the um, California Research initially, where I just learned a lot of background on things and uh, and eventually ended up doing an interview with Bob Monaghan at the Manufacturers Association, and he hired me. And everything's history from there. Wow. That's still pretty fascinating because, you know, the industry has changed, as oh. Tim noted, exponentially. What are some of the biggest changes you've seen in that time? Well, there's so many. Um, but, you know, Back at the beginning, um, when I first started, uh, we, we didn't have term limits. Legislators were up here oftentimes for decades. Um, there was also not the partisanship. Uh, literally, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday night, there was a circuit. Um, oftentimes, the best time to talk to legislators were about 5 o'clock in their office, and they'd be the only ones there. Um, you might even have a drink. Uh, there, then people were off to, you know, Ellis's or, you know, another, you know, bar here and there, but Ellis's was pretty famous over next door to us right now. Um, and then dinner, Frank Fats, and then, uh, you know, people went to Eilish's after that or the torch, or the torch club, all of which were in walking distance. So 
I have to tell you that, uh, you know, back then, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday night, it was really difficult to be home before midnight. Um, and people were, you know, there wasn't much in the way of fundraising, um, but people were very social, and the Frank Fast was always full, and people on both sides of the aisle with lobbyists would, uh, you know, have have drinks and eat. And, you know, we, we traded all that in the name of political reform. Now we have tons of fundraisers, and moneyed interests can participate in those fundraisers, but we have none of the social act. I mean, you know, that's kind of taken the place of what used to be a very social, interactive deal where you got to be friends with people, and you built credibility, and that type of thing. And believe me, your, you know, the word is what you had back then. Well, did you feel like that probably changed a lot during term limits just because people didn't know people as well. and Exactly. Uh, you know, that would be we went, a dramatic change. When we went to short term limits, it was really pronounced um, because you know, people were here. They are always looking, you know, what's my next spot? And to the extent that, that, let's say, two people in the assembly were nested in a Senate seat, that, you know, then they would look to, on big issues with, now, people like the Teachers Association, the Realtors, the Chamber, this and that, they would be looking at their votes and how they could distinguish themselves from their person they were nested with, you know, for the next opportunity. So, and there was, you know, nobody was here to see the results of what they had done. That's the big kind of change with term limits. Certainly going from the, you know, the six and four, or no, six, six and Six and eight, right? Mm-hmm. Um, to twelve years, I think helped a lot. Um, you have a, you don't have people looking over their shoulder all the time trying to get to the next spot, and that's really really good for the process. And you know, having people in place for a longer period of time allows them to build personal relationships, to build trust, to for members kind of to know who they can trust and who they can't, you know, who's an expert and who isn't, you know, so all that I think helps the, the process because, you know, that's, that's our job is to, you know, there's, there's no legislator that, you know, can serve on six or seven committees and understand the, you know, the ins and outs of every one of those issues. And that's our job is to try to explain that. Yeah. We just, uh, we just published the list, uh, this list of assembly committee assignments and, uh, I think it was 13 pages. Yeah. Uh, and I thought, God, how do these people keep any of this straight? You're right. It's really complicated. Yeah. And when you overlay the budget on it as well. And now one of the big differences, too, is that in the last few years, so much policy work is being done in the budget. Yeah. And that's a result of the supermajority kind of situation. Well, one of the things we'd also always heard about term limits is that it, it really shifted a lot of the power to staffers, especially long-term staffers. Sure. and to the lobbying core. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I, I think so. Uh, I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, members come up for a short period of time. You know, the uh, senior staffers would have a lot of influence on them and in terms of policy issues. And and I think the third house, the, the uh, third house from the standpoint of its ability to help members, you know, pursue their own office or higher office. I mean, you know, it's important, especially the big, the you know, the big groups. And, you know, over the years, I mean, went from almost no fundraising when I started. I think when I started, a member would have maybe two events in Sacramento and one in the district or something. They weren't even big deals. Um, but you go from that to what we have now. I mean, 
I don't even know if anybody keeps a list of how many a year, but it's, you know, it's really hard to keep up. And, um, and then you have on top of the regular fundraising, the third party expenditure committees and initiatives and um, you know, PR, or excuse me, um, lobbying now is a combination of, of you know, in, lobbying from a Sacramento standpoint, grassroots, um, you know, issue management, PR, you know, sponsoring propositions. I mean, there's all these different things that go into to lobbying on any given issue. You know, some of the most successful lobbyists in Sacramento are also lawyers, as you are. Uh, can you talk about the theory behind that and why that might be? I know that was something, again, this is something I get from John Howard, who would love to point out all the lobbyists who are also lawyers and note that they were usually high-billing lobbyists. Uh, you know, can you can you kind of get into why that was valuable and why that was a – you said yeah. that that was a thing at one time. Well, um, yeah, I think when in the non-term limits time, a lot of legislators up here – you know, came up, it wasn't necessarily their full-time job. So a lot of legislators were lawyers and practiced in their communities. A lot of them were realtors, a lot of them were insurance agents, you know, things like that. We've, we've seen that change a whole lot now. If I don't think I'm incorrect in saying that there's not enough lawyers that are elected officials to fill the uh, all the committee positions and the two in both House Judiciary Committees. Hmm. So I don't think there's enough lawyers and elected in both houses to fill all the Judiciary Committee spots. So we have non-lawyers on Judiciary Committee. Um, just, you know, this wasn't the way it started. And now we have a lot more people that um, are community activists or they come from labor unions. They come from, you know, they're, they're prior in business, you know, different kinds of small businesses and that type of thing. Um being a lawyer, I think, is really important. It really gives you a, a great grasp of, of issues and how to dissect issues and how to make arguments. And I think at one point there was some different kind of respect you got for being a, a, an attorney. But um, that can work the other way, too, right? Um, and so I think you know, I, I didn't go to law school until I think I started in 1976 after I'd already been here mm-hmm. um, because some of my mentors said, you know, it's an absolute requirement. You need to go to law school and under, understand this. But I think over the years, I've always tried to be the non-lawyer lawyer. I don't try to talk like a lawyer. I remembered, I, I made it a point not to remember any Greek phrases. <laughs> <laughs> How about as uh, your writing skills, though? I've always been told by, by attorneys that the better writer you are, the, the better lawyer you're going to be. And it might even keep you out of court because you can write better letters. Is, is that true? Well, I think, yeah, writing is, is key. I mean, it's presenting an issue, right? I mean, all these, we have a lot of competing issues. And, um, you know, the the 32nd elevator speech is probably better than the three-minute elevator speech. Yeah, that's and true so, in basically every, yeah, industry. Right, every right. industry. If you're on the, if they've got a simple thing that was appeared on the front page of the newspaper, and we always say every industry is one newspaper headline, one bad incident with a legislator, one bad incident with staff or an important constituent away from a bill that's going to cost them a lot of money, make them cost them a lot of time, or make them uncompetitive. I mean, that's just kind of the nature of the political process. That's how we end up with 2,500 bills a, a, a year. Um, but so if you're pushing the bill because there was a headline, um, of something bad happening, um, then and the 
other side has a three minute, you know, or 15 minute explanation. You're working uphill on the 15 minute explanation. And a lot of, obviously, a lot of the areas, uh, insurance, for instance, that we do, we're, you know, we're pushing the envelope on uh, keeping people's attention and having their eyes glaze over. And believe me, you can tell when people's eyes are glazing over, over on these things. So, yeah, I mean, it's how do you, how can you present an issue uh, quickly? Um, and it takes an eye to do that, but it's not exclusive to, um, you know, to being a lawyer. Just you get that kind of training in, in law school. Well, you know, we, we were mentioning before we came on the air, we're talking about fire insurance because clearly fire, uh, wildfires have become a catastrophic issue in this state over the last several years. Right. Uh, talk a little bit about how that's impacted uh, the insurers and, and the, the state as a whole since that's your biggest area of representation. Sure. Um, you know, prior to 2017, a $1 billion fire event, loss event in California was very, very rare. So there was a really good competitive market for homeowners insurance in the state because realistically losses were very predictable. Um, we have earthquake insurance is done through the CEA and and some small, some private carriers, but it's not a very big part of the the uh, insurance um, volume in the state. So as to homeowners insurance, it was pretty predictable that all of a sudden, two seventeen to eighteen, you know, all the next last five years, ten billion plus dollar events became routine. Nobody ever expected that. That put the insurance industry on its heels. We probably, depending on which way the wind was blowing uh, up in Tahoe, what, two years ago, we probably came, we gone the other way, we probably would have had our first $25 billion event. Um, so those are very scary numbers when insurance companies in California under the prior approval system are limited in terms of rate increases they can ask for. Um, they have to base their rate increases on actual losses, not on modeling. Um, and you see that all the time, right? I mean, everybody's climate change is modeling. You're modeling, modeling what's going to happen in the future. Um, reinsurers that you can't write insurance without reinsurers. The worldwide reinsurers are using modeling, um, you know, to predict what the fire is. So companies here can't go to the Department of Insurance and say, we, we know fire is going to increase, we have these losses, we have increased cost of reinsurance, and this and that. They can't do that. They have to base it on their losses. And any losses they have on a catastrophic nature, they have to spread over 20 years. So it you know, reduces the number. So, wow. what we're, so what's happening is the worldwide reinsurance community and insurers don't want to write in areas of the state where there's a high risk of fire. And that is a growing area. The modeling tells us that there's a, going to be a 30% increase in the number of homes in California that will be um, uh, subject to catastrophic wildfires on top of what we have now. And if you look at wildfires, it's it's Northern California, it's the Napa, Sonoma Valley, it's um, San Diego, it's Orange County, it's uh, Ventura, L, you know, LA and Santa Monica and those areas. So it, it really is all over the state. And it's probably, I think, the number one problem in the state, given the amount of damage it causes, the unhealthy air, the, you know, the, the, the death and destruction. What I think the, the perspective is that it's going to get worse before it gets better. That's the problem. And that's why insurance is becoming so difficult. And it's putting people in a very tough spot. California homeowners rates are probably 
and I don't know if this is a dated number or not, but about 40% below that of Texas, Louisiana, and Florida, because those are areas where they've always had catastrophes, where it was always, you know, difficult to predict. And that, that didn't come to California until 217 and after. Nobody predicted wildfires. Uh, so, I'm sorry, did I understand that right, that uh, homeowner insurance rates are generally 40% below those of Texas? Texas, Louisiana, and Florida. Wow. In terms of, right? Because they have because they hurricane damage? Well, because yeah. those are also catastrophic states. Yeah. California, through wildfires, have joined those as a catastrophic state, and nobody expected it. And so, and insurers can't catch up because of the kind of the nuances of the regulatory system. Wow. Well, we're also seeing this problem all over the West. I mean, right. Washington, Oregon, Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, everywhere in the West we're seeing this. Uh, you know, I'm not a climate expert. I mean, certainly climate change gets a, a lot of uh, ink here talking about the impacts there. How does that impact what you do? Well, I just worry about California, but no, there's no question that affects, you know, the certainly the insurance industry and, you know, people who live in those areas. Um, you know, a lot of this goes back to the big fires that I think it was 1910 or 1914 where 4 million acres in the, in the West burned. And there's a big debate over, you know, do we do fire suppression or we do um, fire prevention? And suppression won. Uh, there's all kinds of, um, you know, Articles have been written about that. And I think we're seeing the same thing in California. All the budget money in California is being spent on uh, planes and helicopters and equipments and crews and this and that. And that's big, big, big money so far. And certainly Cal Fire wants that and we need that to be able to stop the fires. But budget wise, not that much money has been spent on fire prevention and, uh, you know, forest management. Um, some of that is because the, Federal government is responsible for a lot of the forest, but this is not just a forest issue. It's it's the forests, it's the foothills, it's the urban interface in San Diego, Orange County, uh, Santa Monica, Ventura. Those areas is brush. Um, it's having uh, homes built along you know near canyons that are full full of brush and this and that. Those are going to go up quick. So um, you know it, it's a it's an ongoing debate. More money has to be put in um, uh, fire uh, prevention uh, you, eventually. We had done a conference on wildfires, uh, I guess about four years ago, and there was an example of a community that had a, had a terrible burn, and the fire chief convinced the leadership of the city that they, when they rebuilt, they really need to harden the right. community. And they passed some of the most stringent, I hate this, I don't know the name of the town, but they passed some of the most stringent laws about rebuilding. And they had another fire come through about 10 years later, and the losses were minimal. And it really showed that it worked. So you can make investments in uh, fire prevention, or at least having it impact homes and businesses. But it was a lot of work, and it also limited what you could do. I mean, people love living out in the woods, and they want a tree right there, you know. Well, having a tree right next to your house might look great, but it's probably not great when there's a fire like going from treetop yeah. to treetop. So. There's a lot of uh, debate on that going on in our industry, and um, there's a community in Colorado that's a fire-safe community. There's communities here um, that are fire-safe communities, and that's really the key. And, and, um, and as I, I think I mentioned before we got on the air, that the insurance commissioner 
um, has new regulations that require companies to provide discounts for various, I think, eight different things that a person can do to harden their house, but then also on a community basis. Uh, I think there's very little support for individual um, home hardening uh, techniques. Um, it's everything I've read, it's got to be done by community by community. Um, and if the whole community does it, then you can be safe. But if you're right, you know, if you've done all these things for your house and you're right next door to the house that, to, that's totally overgrown, there's a good chance that, you know, you're going to burn too. Um, and we've even set an example I think I gave you where we've seen homes that are cement, rock, and glass or made not to burn and they melted because the fire is so hot. I mean, we, we have so you know, our, our forests are so overgrown that these fires get so hot because they, they just go top to top to top and they become their own infernos and things like that. And that's, you know, one of the big problems we've had is that, you know, we've got 10 times, the, you know, the number of trees in a forest than we probably really should have. And that contributes to the drought because, you know, I think it was the uh, department said last year that a lot less of the water got to the streams. Well, guess what? Why? You know, it was being sucked up by all the trees that we really shouldn't shouldn't have before it gets there. So it contributes to the to the drought, contributes to the risk of fire. I mean, I'm not an expert in any of this stuff, but I, I read a lot and it's well, very consistent with what scientists and other commentators say. Oh, you know, we mentioned earlier one of the things that had changed was the you know, the partisanship. I, I don't think you need to be a genius to see how bad it's become and certainly I wonder you noted know, how much of the of our forest lands in all the states are actually federal land, and right. that requires such a level of cooperation between the state and the feds? Is the, is the partisanship playing a role in all this, and how we're able to manage these forests properly? Well, and speaking of now, that, now that you see this, Rich, uh, with Kevin McCarty's, uh obviously from Bakersfield, California, he's now the speaker is a Republican. Do you think he could be willing to approach this in a different way than Pelosi had? Would, could that make it? Well, actually, we're seeing now with Biden and uh, Newsom that there have been some commitments to um, substantial amounts of money to to deal with forest uh, maintenance and fire prevention from, from the federal government. So I think that was talked about in the, during the Trump administration. There was even some commitments made there, but I think that's been upped uh, in terms of uh, Biden administration. Um, yeah, I think that uh, there's a lot that uh, can be done in cross party lines with the in the Senate and in the House and with the president to try to deal with this issue in California. I mean, it's um, certainly if you pass one point seven trillion dollars, you got to be able to find some money for fire prevention in the largest state in the union. Well. I think Tim mentioned it earlier. We got to circle back to the pools. We had all this rain. We had all of this, and there's more coming. From what I understand, we're a little break right now awesome. as we're recording this, <laughs> but there's more coming. I'm sure that people would ask you, "How can you support pools when they're when we're always in a drought?" Yeah, pools uh, aren't water wasters. Uh, pools use a lot less water than lawns, um, and uh, really, overall, they're a fraction of 1% of every community's 
annual water use. We find this consistently where we go into a city and say, well, how many new pools did you permit last year? And they'll give us a number and we'll figure out the average pools, 14,000 uh, gallons and times that by the number of you know pools that are likely to be built and convert that into acre feet. And then we ask, well, how much water did that community use a year in acre feet? It turns out that you know pools contribute about point zero 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 two percent to that use, so um, they're not they're not a big draw on the water. They're they're clearly more efficient than regular landscaping. You, you had mentioned some yeah some numbers about the lawn, which I was really yeah. I mean it makes sense. I mean it is a yes. little you see a lot of water when you look at a pool, right. but then when you think about how much water just goes into a lawn and then disappears, right. and I, you had a number. I think it was something like. Well, so if you take a square feet of lawn and square foot of pool of water, the, the water evaporates less um, than it takes to um, to irrigate the lawn to keep that alive, just based on that. But you take a, a typical pool project, a third of that project is water, the rest is hardscape. Yeah. And it's growing because the hardscape's growing because people want outdoor uh, kitchens. They want out, you know, places to, to relax and this and that. So... You know, you're taking a, uh, a piece of land that used to be um, some type of landscaping, whether it just be lawn or plants or whatever, and two-thirds of that, when you get through with your project, two-thirds of that will never be irrigated again. You know, plus the water is using less than lawn. So you win. The pool wins every time. <laughs> it's, not, it's not even close. But you have... We've seen, and you get a nice tan. Right. So. But we've seen water districts, and there's one particular one I won't name right now, that... They couldn't rebut any of the scientific stuff that we had in terms of proving that. They banned um, issuing new permits for pools in this county solely because they didn't want to take calls from neighbors complaining about the fact that they couldn't water their lawns as much or their lawns were getting a little brown and Joe Smith down the street was putting in a pool. I mean, it's, it's very frustrating, but uh, that's the case. Fortunately, there, um, you know, we've convinced the Department of Water Resources and all the state people that pools aren't an issue, we, but we have to do it based on every local jurisdiction because every jurisdiction has their own urban water management plan and they have emergency stages of when they put in things and some of them um, had limits on pools, which historically came from the valley where uh, when in the hot times people would fill up their plastic pools and dump them. Oh, yeah. Well, the moral of the story, we should all have a pool then. I I feel justified in saying, going home and telling my wife, we need to get get a house with a pool. Save about 30,000 gallons a year (laughs) um, in water over the over having it a traditional landscape. You know, I I can tell you, this is a good excuse to tell my pool story from yesterday. So I swim a lot, and I went to uh, the West Sac Pool, which is a beautiful facility. And I, you know, got in the locker room, changed, went out, and I thought, oh, they've got part of the pool is covered, but I was like, well, they're probably doing that because there's not many people use the pool at right. night in the middle of winter. So I get in and I start doing my laps and I do about six laps and all of a sudden they feel a tap on my head and they say, I'm sorry, sir, the pool's closed. <laughs> 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 they, didn't, they didn't put a sign up or anything. So, and you know, it, wow. I got right in. So uh, I said, yeah, the, uh, the water he- the heater's broken. So we were not having, I was like, oh, it did feel a little bit cold. So yeah. 
my my random pool story, which yeah. happened yesterday. Well, natural gas is really expensive right now, so trying to heat a pool, I want to put a cover on it. Yeah, you know, exactly. I just yeah. thought, well, they they know, yeah. you know, the last time I was at the pool, there was only two people there the whole time I was there, so I thought they're probably just covering part of it to keep the heat in. No, they're covering because it's closed. <laughs> but, oh, well. The only other question I think I have for you is, you know, we've been in such good budget times until this year. And how are you looking at this year? Is this going to be a really hard year for you, you think, and for your No, we don't do a lot of budget issues, but if you look at the budget, $22 billion based on a $300 billion budget is not much. I think legislators are going to do what the governor, you know, I mean, the governor basically cut back kind of percentage-wise over, you know, the same percentage over a lot of programs, but wants to keep those programs going. Um, they, they have put a lot of money in reserve the last couple of years. I think they'll, they, you know, I don't think the Department of Finance wants them to, but they will probably, you know, take some of that money down. The big question is, um, just as the extra money that came in, you know, the, got kept growing, the deficit can keep growing. 22 today, you know, by May could be 40 or 50. I was saying, hey, it all kind of depends on what happens in the market, what happens, what's the, the, you know, is there going to be a recession? Is it a soft landing? If it's not a soft landing, how things go? But those, the numbers can go so quick mm-hmm. uh, on you. And I mean, I don't do a whole lot of budget things, but, I, but I've seen in the past where we've had, you have a 50 or $60 billion deficit, a lot harder, yeah. right? Then, then programs start going down. Then every bill, when it goes to uh, to <clears throat> appropriations committee, is looked at from a, from the governor's office as does this require more people? Does this require an expansion of a program? Things like that. And we then, talked to Daryl Steinberg about that. I mean, yeah. his, basically his whole yeah. Senate uh, well, pro tem was just yeah, doing that. I mean, Jerry Brown was famous for that. I mean, there's no reason to grow programs, you know, or to add programs, or people wanting to do continuing education in a particular industry. No, that takes a whole new program and won't get paid for by itself. So all those things are on the sidelines. All right. Well, John Norwood, thank you so much for doing this. It was fun talk and learn. I actually hate to say this. I learned a lot about insurance. It <laughs> <laughs> was my pleasure. Thank you. So, all right. Well, thanks, John Norwood. That was really, really interesting stuff. And that can only mean that now it is time to go to our favorite segment of every show, Who Had the Worst Week in California Politics? The worst week. Worst week. Worst week. So I think we had a pretty easy time of it this week, Rich. Yeah, I think the choice this week, Tim, is pretty easy. Uh, anyone in a Democratic campaign uh, circles knows that Tom Girardi, the attorney from Los Angeles, has been a big time donor for many, many years to many of the biggest names in democratic politics. Uh, he is looking at all kinds of problems because uh, he has he's now going to be facing uh, major charges of, of stealing from his uh, many clients. Um, his wife's divorcing him. Um, not yeah, they sure. saw that it was they were. They thought he had embezzled $18 million was the number I saw. $18 million. Yes, $18 million. And uh, I think the question that we're certainly going to be talking about for the foreseeable future is whether he's going to be actually found competent to stand trial. Uh, That's going to be the next big part of all this. But uh, certainly his future is looking kind of bleak because the reason the questions around him being competent, of course, is that he is currently residing in the 
uh, memory care uh, unit of a of a, an assisted living facility. So uh, things are already not really doing that well for him. And and now the question is whether or not he's uh, going to you know have to stand trial for this alleged embezzlement. Yeah, and he, uh, I think I saw that he was eighty three years old and was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and is, has been living in this facility for a while. So uh, I think it's it's bad more for his legacy. I don't know, frankly, how aware he is going to be of all this. I mean, that's a horrible, horrible thing to even think about. But uh, one way or another, you know, it just seems like a pretty awful way to end your career. I mean, he had, this is a guy who was a lawyer in the Aaron Brockovich case. Uh, was a longtime Democratic donor, was very well known in political circles, and is really, really at the end of his life and at the end of his career now is really hitting bottom. And it's it's pretty sad to see, actually. Well, and, you know, one of the ancillary effects here, of course, is that, you know, there's question about these massive uh, donations that he gave for many years. Uh, and, and we're talking to the biggest names in Democratic politics, including Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, Governor Newsom, Diane Feinstein, et cetera, et cetera. You know, now the question is, well, had he stole that money? You know, was that was that stolen funds that he used to make these donations? And, if, you know, that's going to put a lot of those people back on the hot seat. Uh, they're certainly going to have to answer questions about it anyway. And, you know, that's never a comfortable thing for uh, anyone to have to respond to. So I, I think um, certainly his was the worst week, but I think uh, it's likely that it's going to channel out a little bit too before it's all said and done. Yep. Yep. I think, uh, but I think it was a pretty easy choice this week. So yes. all right. Well, we'll, uh, we'll have everyone go on their way and we'll, uh, we'll talk to you next week. Yep. Thanks, Tim. See you next time. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.